0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we take a listen to the 1999 score for Angela's Ashes. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. If you're listening to this episode, you're a fan of John Williams and this podcast. And I hope you'll show how much of a fan of this podcast you are by taking a couple of minutes to nominate this show for Best Music Podcast, as well as the People's Choice Award for the annual Podcast Awards. Just go to podcastawards.com, sign up, and vote for The Baton, A John Williams Musical Journey. Voting ends on July 31st, 2020. John Williams did something very taboo before he sat down to compose the score to Angela's Ashes. He read the Pulitzer Prize-winning memoir on which the 1999 film is based. As far as I can remember, he has only done that just three times in his career. Naturally, probably as a child, he had read Jane Eyre and Heidi long before writing the music for those TV films, but he also picked up a copy of The Accidental Tourist and pitched himself as the composer for that film. It appears that Williams did read the book shortly after it was released in 1996, and once he knew the film was in production, he lobbied hard to get the job as composer. Director Alan Parker wrote this in the liner notes of the soundtrack CD. Quote, Before I finished filming Angela's Ashes, I received a message that John Williams had agreed to do the score. For a filmmaker, of course, this is akin to winning the lottery. End quote. Alan Parker certainly had a great list of previous composer collaborations to pick from for this film, but none of them would have worked. Giorgio Moroder, who won an Oscar for his electronic score for Midnight Express, would not have been a good fit for this film, no matter how well his music worked for the equally depressing Midnight Express. And Michael Gore, who wrote music for Fame that indescribably won an Oscar over John Williams' The Empire Strikes Back score, Might have been a good choice, but he hadn't done a movie since 1991 and his return to movie scoring was happening that year with the Molly Shannon comedy superstar based on several Saturday Night Live sketches. Perhaps it was poetic justice for Williams to be the pick for composer for Alan Parker's first straight non-musical drama since 1990. Before John Williams joined the crew, Parker was dealing with a good cast to convey the three actors who would portray Frank at three stages of his life. The choice of Emily Watson and Robert Carlyle as Frank's parents, Angela and Malachy, was odd casting. Neither are Irish, and you could almost hear it in their voices as they try to find the right accent. But at least they are from the same corner of the world, so their attempts at Irish accents is not as jarring as Tom Cruise's. Multiple internet reports claim that Liam Neeson had signed on to play the father, but dropped out just before filming began. Watson's star was on the rise thanks to her Oscar-nominated performances in 1996's Breaking the Waves and 1998's *Hillary and Jackie, while Carlisle was enjoying a hot moment in the spotlight after standout roles in *Train Spotting* in 1996 and The Full Monty in 1997. Angela's Ashes was his third film of 1999 after playing a villain in a James Bond movie and a soldier who eats people in Ravenous. The movie is full of atmosphere, thanks to cinematographer Michael Sarenson, And once Williams was able to watch the film, he didn't rely on his own thoughts to shape the music he would write. In a Boston Globe interview, he said, I like Frank McCourt's book very much, and I spoke to him about the film after he'd seen it. McCourt said he genuinely loved the film. That seemed to be the boost Williams needed, and he found that the film's ability to use some humor not comedy, but humor, would help his work. What we get in Williams' score doesn't try to make the film's events seem more optimistic or hopeful, at least not until the very end. There are three scenes in the film that would be described as uplifting, and only one of them features original music. Instead, Parker chose to use upbeat songs from the time period to highlight the levity on screen. Was this a decision early on by Parker and Williams? There are Pretty much just two themes throughout the film, and very few moments for the score to really stand out in the film. I will highlight some of those standout moments, and even a couple of moments that might be flying under the radar, so to speak. What's remarkable about the choices Williams makes with the score is that he doesn't resort to the cliches. Unlike his score for Far and Away seven years earlier, Williams does not use one Irish instrument in the Angela's Ashes score. No Yulian pipes, no tin whistles. In making that choice, Williams said, quote, there was no need for the music to emphasize the specifically Irish or Catholic aspect of the story, end quote. Williams tries to make this very Irish story universal with his music. The harp, piano, and strings are the primary instruments used for this score. I don't think the brass section of the Hollywood Symphony Orchestra ever played a single note for this score. There are some horn passages and, of course, plenty of woodwinds, but it's a much gentler score than one might feel is needed. The emotion of the score is so subdued that you almost don't realize it's there until halfway through a particular scene. And once again, Williams plays the piano in the score. Not all of the piano parts, but I suppose the artist in him was being pestered by the performer in him from his Juilliard training 50 years earlier. I did some of the playing myself, Williams said. That was my little effort for this thing. I started off with the picture playing piano by itself playing a single line. I thought the simplicity, the directness of the voice would be useful and good. So here's that opening music which plays under the opening titles of the film. Before we go any further, I just want to say that Randy Kerber is the credited piano player for this score. It's likely that the piece we just heard is the only time Williams took on performing duties for this score. The piano plays over shots of a rainy day in a seemingly abandoned neighborhood, featuring narration by an adult actor as Frank McCourt, guiding us through his life. The American release of the soundtrack score featured a lot of this narration over the music, which is very distracting but if you can get your hands on a soundtrack release in any other country, you will not find narration on it. Why they felt narration needed to be put onto the American CD tells a lot about the American attention span. This theme on the piano that opens the film is one of two themes Williams creates for Angela's Ashes. There's no one person that the theme attaches to, so we'll call it the McCourt family theme. It plays again just two minutes into the film when the first of the McCourt children die. The piano is tender as Angela cries, and Malachi tries to comprehend the situation as the children look on. Maliki picks up the dead newborn baby, and here's where Williams introduces the second of the film's themes. It's primarily on the strings and will show up when death comes to visit the McCourts. The family theme closes it out as Angela cries in bed. I love how Williams creates themes that repeat themselves before extending the phrase, as it does in the grief theme here. Four rising and falling notes play, then are repeated to hammer home the idea, then played in a different way before returning to the original idea. You might also recognize part of the grief theme as a variation on the Dies Irae theme that Williams has used before and as a relative to the death theme from Nixon, which also plays when Nixon's siblings die. When the McCord family finds themselves unable to afford living in America, they return to Ireland and live with Angela's sister. The music Williams wrote for this shows off his ease at writing lush string melodies, giving us just a tiny bit of hope that the return to Ireland will bring prosperity. I think closing it out with the family theme on piano helps to lower our expectations that life will get better. Throughout the score, the two main themes will continue to blend together, including a sequence in which Angela is forced to beg for food at the local church and get a loan from a rich woman. The theme on the strings highlights the family struggles, while the piano theme makes their lives more human and as familiar as the piano itself, stripping down the notes to the bare essentials, like the McCourt's Bare Bones Home. As I mentioned earlier, many of the happy moments for the family are not scored by John Williams, but there apparently was one somewhat lighter scene that the director and composer felt might be aided by Williams' music. It comes after the children wake up screaming while being bitten by fleas. The father makes jokes while they beat the fleas out of the mattress outside, and Williams tried to accentuate the levity with plucked strings. This music, however, was not used, but it is included on the CD. I guess Alan Parker didn't want Williams to make things feel too happy with his music. The family, as we will find out, is about to experience more grief when two children die later, so he keeps us wallowing in the McCourt's misery. Another light sequence of scenes in the film apparently got some Williams' music, but Alan Parker decided to put in a Billie Holiday song because Frank adored Billie Holiday, And I guess it worked better to have her singing than to hear this music as Frank is taking a job delivering telegrams around the city. This music, which sounds very much like the unused string plucking Williams wrote for the fleas in the mattress scene, works perfectly for the scene. If you have access to the film, play this music at the 1 hour, 53 minute, and 50 second mark. I think you will agree this music is just as good as any Billie Holiday song. Thankfully, the biggest moment of the score remains intact in the film. After seeing this movie in the theater in 1999, I could not get the image of Frank throwing a book into the river out of my head, and that's probably because the music accompanying it was so impactful. This book is the ledger of payments owed by almost all the poor people in Limerick, including Frank's mom. Frank has been earning money from Mrs. Fanuken writing past due notices, and one day Frank arrives at her house to find her dead of probably a heart attack. With no witnesses, Frank takes some of Mrs. Fanukin’s money and the ledger. The McCourt family theme plays gently while Frank as narrator speaks. But first, a sad violin and harp play as Frank discovers Mrs. Fanukin’s body. Frank takes the book to the river and the family theme fades away as the grief theme takes over and swells to big heights when Frank lets the book fly into the river. Now Frank has the money to sail to America and make his dreams come true of going to a university and, well, becoming a famous writer. And the music will soar one more time to close out the film as we see Frank running to the bow of a ship to catch a glimpse of the Statue of Liberty, which he hadn't seen in about 15 years. It's interesting that Williams puts in the grief theme at the end here. I have no thoughts about why it's here, except that Williams loves to put in reprises of themes at the end of all his film scores, and this theme seemed to fit there better than the family theme. The end's credits music begins with the McCourt family theme on piano, so we are reminded of the people he left behind in Ireland, and perhaps we could feel the legacy Frank will create for the family in America as the strings take the theme and make it fly. So as I played for you earlier, the soundtrack CD for Angela's Ashes has a lot of the unused music for the film, but it has a few tracks featuring music written I think just for the album, including the track The Land of Limerick, featuring a solo harp by Joanne Tarofsky. In the United States, Angela's ashes made just 13 million dollars. And here's the weird thing, the movie apparently didn't play anywhere else in the world, because there is no information regarding the international box office receipts, not even for Ireland, and there's no report regarding its lack of an international release. So without an international release, Angela's Ashes definitely did not make back its $50 million budget, and the film made nothing more than a whisper. Luckily, having John Williams's name attached to it helped the film, as the score received numerous peer award nominations. There was an Oscar nomination, a Golden Globe nomination, and a Grammy nomination for Williams. The Oscar and Golden Globe nominations came in early 2000, and first was the Golden Globe Awards, where Williams lost to Ennio Morricone's score to The Legend of 1900, an obscure Italy-USA co-production that had a music-related storyline and relied heavily on Morricone's score. But, The Legend of 1900 went no further than the Golden Globes, and Williams found himself on the losing side at the Oscars once again, this time losing to another John, in this case, John Corigliano, for his score to the Red Violin. I can't be too upset by this loss because I adore Corigliano's work for the Red Violin, and I was able to attend a Q&A with Corigliano in Boulder, Colorado after a screening of the film in 2000. It was amazing to hear Corigliano talk about the strain of deadlines surrounding the creation of a lot of the music before filming began, and then picking it up after filming completed. And having come from the symphonic world, it was a very difficult task for him. But he did wonderfully. So I asked for that Grammy nomination for Angela's Ashes. It came in 2001 due to the late release of the score in 1999. The theme from Angela's Ashes was nominated for Best Instrumental Composition, and it won the award. This was the first time a Williams composition made it into this category, which is not specific to any genre, since 1988. The last time Williams picked up a Grammy in this category was 1985 for his 1984 Olympics theme. John Williams wrapped up recording the Angela's Asher score in early fall 1999, but he was not completely done with it then. I'll expand on some of the music, Williams said in a Boston Globe interview in January 2000, probably the piano part, and particularly the cello solos, because Yo-Yo Ma will come join us. End quote. Yo-Yo Ma was not the only celebrity performer at the three special concerts on June 3, 5, and 7, 2000 with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. The author himself, Frank McCourt, offered narration from his book, And John Williams performed on the piano, conducting the orchestra when he wasn't playing piano. Thankfully, you can find this performance on YouTube. My father and mother should have stayed in New York where they met and married and where I was born. Instead, they returned to Ireland when I was four, my brother Malachi three, the twins Oliver and Eugene barely one, and my sister Margaret dead and gone. My father, Malachi McCourt, was born on a farm in Trum, County Antrim. Like his father before, he grew up wild in trouble with the English or the Irish or both. He fought with the old IRA. And for some desperate act, he wound up a fugitive with a price in his head. While Angela's Ashes was bombing at the box office around Christmas time, 1999, most of the world was bracing for Y2K. Remember the fear that spread over the belief that the world's technology would shut down once the calendar flipped to a new millennium? One person who was not worried about that, at least on the surface, was John Williams who was standing on a podium at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. on the evening of December 31, 1999. He was prepared for the one-time-only live performance of his six-part composition, The Unfinished Journey, which would accompany a 25-minute film by Steven Spielberg chronicling the highs and lows of the past 200 years or so of United States history. And this composition and Spielberg's involvement was commissioned by President Bill Clinton. I played a bit of this composition for you on the Far and Away episode, as music from that score featured in a couple of places in the composition, particularly in the immigration and building section. My favorite moment in the entire composition comes in the part called Civil Rights and the Women's Movement. This music should have been saved for a film score, and maybe it was. The very next score Williams would write after debuting this composition, The Patriot, seems to feature a little variation on this theme for the militia who fight the British Army. The Unfinished Journey is my favorite non-film score composition by John Williams. I really wish I had seen the live performance on New Year's Eve 1999, but like many people, I was busy celebrating and preparing for what might be the end of civilization. Thank goodness it wasn't. That performance in front of Lincoln's memorial was never put on DVD. Only a brief clip exists on YouTube featuring The Unfinished Journey, and that features Malcolm X's wife and Paul Winfield as narrators in a 2001 concert. You can get the entire composition, though, on CD. As the calendar flipped to 2000, Williams learned that Spielberg was coming back to movie making with a story that the late director Stanley Kubrick had left behind. Williams seemed to have his schedule open for any projects that seemed to interest him while Spielberg filmed his story of a robot boy who wants to become human. And that couldn't have been better news for the producer and director of a new film called The Patriot. But let's stop the story there and pick it up on the next episode it's so exciting to enter the new millennium on our trip through john williams's career and i really want to thank you for listening through these past episodes i'm looking forward to us getting together on the next episode and until then the baton is down